I'm Kate Osborne. And I'm Lila Shapiro. And this is Surreal Estate. A new show all about real estate. It's not just about real estate. It's about all that stuff that happens inside the spaces we call home. Right, exactly. And this is our very first episode. If you want to know a little bit more about what we're hoping to do here, check out the trailer just before this episode. Okay, so today's show is all about that which came before. Or rather, who came before. Because unless you're living in a totally newly constructed building, you're living in recycled housing. Someone was always there before you, which is something that I personally have always wondered about. Who lived in the very space in which I live? And, well, did any of them die in my house? Yeah. And did maybe something else kind of fucked up happen inside these four walls? (laughs) So many scenarios one can imagine. And because the internet exists, you can find out the answer to this question on diedinhouse.com. And the website, as you would imagine, has a very classy sales pitch. I want you to remember these three words, died in house. Why? Well, would it bother you if you found out that someone died in your house after you moved in? What if it was a murder or a suicide? (laughs) So before we came into the studio, we ran both our houses through the search. And obviously it costs money. It's like $20 for three searches. And we're both in the clear, so we can just say that right out there. No one has died in our houses. Oh, and my house was never used as a meth lab. (laughs) Which is also comforting, I guess. I think a lot of people use this when they're buying a place, not when they already live there. Right. You would think a real estate agent would just tell you this before you bought. But as it turns out, in most states, you don't have to disclose that information because it's not what they call a material fact. Which seems so crazy because... You know, what would make something a material fact? Technically, it's what a reasonable person wouldn't think is an important detail. Which, of course, is debatable, as is kind of the very nature of, like, what makes someone reasonable or not. (laughs) Yes, highly debatable. (laughs) But when something bad happens in a space, some disasters, murder, suicide, death in any form, these things can stick to the house. It's what people in the real estate biz like to downplay by calling a detrimental condition. Yeah, I love that euphemism. I mean, hand it to the real estate industry. They know how to downplay anything that could make a property worth less. Right, exactly. Detrimental condition as opposed to someone died in your fucking house. Someone killed themselves in your bathtub. Right, exactly. With detrimental conditions, there's just an endless list of, of tragedies and things. There, You can have the hurricanes, earthquakes, wildfires. You can have the crimes, the mass suicide, terrorist attacks. It goes on and on. That's Randall Bell. He is the world expert on all bad things that can happen to a property. Yeah, he's the guy who comes in and decides, okay, here's this situation that happened. How much less is the property worth now? That's why people call him the master of disaster. Yeah, but I want people to call him the Olivia Pope of real estate. (laughs) I like thinking about Kerry Washington as much as possible, so I'm down with that. Amen. We'll get back to the Olivia Pope of real estate later in the show. So detrimental conditions. On average, depending on how bad those so-called conditions are, a property can lose about 25% of its worth, sometimes up to 100%. Right. If it's really bad, then the property will be worth absolutely nothing. You can't give it away. But why? Because, okay, a murder has happened. The house is still intact. It still keeps the rain out, right? Or even if it doesn't, the land is still there. You could rebuild. Yeah, it's like 
a feeling or a perception, the fear that the neighbor's kids won't come over to your house to play, which I don't really care about, but most people do. <laughs> and there are various ways of dealing with that perception. Right. There's a couple steps. Scrubbing away the physical remains. Trying to rid the house of the paranormal hangers-on. And even after the cleanup, you need that assessment to figure out, you know, what's it worth now. First things first, though. As in... Part one, the cleanup crew. Because of course, after something bad happens, that stuff doesn't just go away on its own. Someone comes in and cleans it. Right, and I spend time with a guy who does exactly that. My name's Doug Baruchin. I'm the president at Island Trauma Services. Island Trauma Services is a trauma scene cleanup company, biohazard company, hoarding cleanup company. Um, we're one of those companies that, that do what most other people don't want to do. Doug and his crew do the kind of job people don't even want to think about doing. The list on his website of the things they can handle is a litany of the worst kind of shit. Blood cleanup, suicide cleanup, unattended death cleanup, hoarding cleanup. I guess historically people who would do this were usually the person's family members or whoever owned that home. But these days it's really a specialty and it's something that is delicate and a bit upsetting. But is also very necessary work. I, I just want to issue a warning here because what you're about to hear is a discussion in detail about the physical remnants of murder and suicide. And you're not going to hear a lot from us in this segment. We're just going to let it play. It was an unattended death, and it was in the summer. It was in the Bronx. And it was about 95 degrees, and it had been 95 degrees for probably about a week. And the person who passed away, passed away on... A bed that had a plastic cover on it. Typically, in a situation where somebody passes away on a bed, the bed acts like kind of a big absorbent. This had nowhere to go and was just basically there, bodily fluids, flies, maggots, everything you would associate with death in that situation and had nowhere to go. So it was like it happened yesterday, although it had happened two weeks before. And it was just a, a absolute mess of, of every part of the body you can possibly imagine. Skin, hair, blood, fluids, fats, oils, whatever it is. That was about as bad as it got. And it was 95 degrees. And it was a three-story walk-up. And it was, you know, within five minutes, you're at nearly the point of heat exhaustion. It's just that bad. I don't think we could work for more than maybe 10 minutes at a time. It took a long time to get it done. See, a lot of people think of crime scene cleanup as being like a sexy CSI, camera snapping, chalk outlines. It's anything but. It's basically what's left of a body. Now, understand, crime scene doesn't just encompass homicide. Crime scene encompasses suicides, unattended deaths, medical trauma, homicide as well. Biohazard scene, let's take a, a suicide, for instance. Typical, I don't know how graphic you want me to be, but a typical, be as graphic as you want. typical shotgun suicide is exactly what you think it would be. It's a 360-degree spatter pattern. Ceilings, walls, floors, and obviously wherever the person ended up, on the floor, on the bed, whatever it is. You have to kind of work your way in. You can't just walk into a room and take a look around and then walk back out because then you're going to cross-contaminate outside the room or in the hallway of the apartment or down the stairs. So 
you'll have to give an assessment first, figure out how to get into the room safely, how to have people in the room, people out of the room. And you're going to start with the heaviest areas first, the most concentrated bulk areas. For I'm trying to be as, as delicate as I can with what we do. And work from there. And it's a lot of times it's a discovery process. You don't know how far something went until you actually get into it, until you move a bed or a couch or open up a hardwood floor. People talk about a smell of death. Is that a thing? Yeah. Do you feel like it stays with you? Like yes. in your clothes? And... and in my nose for days, yeah. And, you know, we... Could you grab the mask over there? I think it's right underneath the, the whiteboard. We'll go in with a full face mask with organic vapor cartridges, you know, as protected as we possibly can. Even in wearing this, you still have to breathe through your mouth because you can still get the odor. And, you know, unfortunately for us, we have to smell that odor. We need to know that when we're done, that odor is gone. Well, people, like you said, always ask, you know, what's the worst thing that you've ever seen? We had something where um, a husband had um, killed his wife, had bludgeoned his wife. And, you know, we were there with the, the family members and they had kids. And this was one of the situations where we could see when we were cleaning up what had happened and where it started and where it ended. And we had to clean off things like photo albums and we had to go into drawers. You can never assume in any situation that drawers were closed when this happened because, you know, authorities come in, they'll open closed drawers and look at things. And we, I remember seeing a picture of the two of them on the beach blue drink, this drawer coming out of it, big smiles on. And I remember stopping and like looking at this picture for a good like, you know, 30 seconds and then realizing, wait, 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 you know, I have to get this done. I'm in the middle of this. I have to go talk to the family members. And I just wish I had never known that whole situation. I wish somebody had just come in and said, I need this room cleaned. And that would have been easier for me. You know, in any job, you can get used to just about anything. Not everybody can, but do I see maggots? Do I see brain tissue or skulls or whatever? Yeah, all the time. You know, that's the job part of it. That's the, okay, let's get this room back to where it needs to be. Let's get it to a safe environment. It's the dealing with the family members that's the thing that really sticks with you to see a grown man break down and, and sob. Or somebody say, you know, I should have known. I should have been able to do something. It's really difficult. It's, it's actually, you know, gut-wrenching. But that's what makes this a very unique kind of a job. You have to be able to handle that. And Do you feel like this work has made you more empathetic? We help people get through probably the most difficult time in their life, whether it's losing a spouse, a child, a father, a mother, whether it's somebody who's a hoarder who hasn't had anybody in their home in 15 years. These are probably the hardest things that these people ever have to deal with. And we, in a small way, help them get through it. Do you still have, like, even though you've been doing it a while, do you still have those holy shit moments? Uh, well, yeah, uh, we do. Um, every once in a while, you'll come across something that is just beyond imagination. Um, we were doing something upstate New York, and it was suicide. And it was basically, it was in every room, every single room. Like, we couldn't figure it out. It looked like a grenade went off. And we're cleaning, we're just about done, and just on chance, you know, we 
kind of move the microwave away. There was brain matter behind the microwave. Behind the microwave, not, you know, against the wall. Not like it could have just, but around. It defies gravity, what, what goes on in these things behind doors, closed doors. And we still get them. And we will actually walk in and, you know, the guys will be like, holy shit, exactly what you said. What the hell happened here? What? I don't get it. We don't understand. Happens all the time. And we have a rule now never to say, well, okay, this is as bad as it gets. We've seen it all. Because every time we say that, we see something that we've never seen before. And it's always worse. It's never better. So. Okay. So that is that. What Doug and his crew do. The literal cleaning. And then there is the cleansing. So uh, what are you doing now? I'm sorry. Now I'm just burning sage to just cleanse myself a little bit. When I burn sage, I usually pray as well. I sing a song that goes, Grandfather Sage, cleanse me, cleanse me. Grandfather Sage, make me clean and pure. Grandfather Sage. (laughs) Grandfather Sage. That's Kyermond. He's a guy who introduces himself with a variety of titles. Intuitive consultant, manifestation expert, someone who can provide clarity and solutions from a shamanic standpoint. But essentially, he's the guy you call when you think your house is haunted. Okay, so before we lose you, here's why the shamanic standpoint has a lot to do with real estate. See, the thing is, is that real estate is not just about numbers and how much you have left on your mortgage. It's also about our attachments to the physical spaces we inhabit. And it's a surprisingly common feeling that you're not alone in your home. According to Gallup, nearly 40% of Americans believe in haunted houses. I mean, yeah, Americans believe in a lot of crazy shit. But this one happens to be a belief that can make your house worth less. So what do people do when they have this feeling? They call someone like Kai. I am actually the, the, the person that I was told to stay away from my whole life. Here's the story with Kai. He grew up evangelical on Long Island, where he was in the church choir and he played guitar at Bible study every Wednesday night. But he's also gay. And being gay in an evangelical environment, you know, it makes you question everything, including God. And when a friend introduced him to tarot cards, everything changed. I had a friend of mine who had a pack of like tarot cards and we wish we'd just pull them out and say things and I just something just drew me into them and I said wow this is something so beautiful and true. That something led him to leave home shortly thereafter and now he uses his shamanic standpoint to help cleanse people's homes of those that linger. I met him at his friend's apartment in Brooklyn. This was a place he had been wanting to cleanse for some time because the building was once a hospital and Kai had a hunch there might still be a lot of spirits hanging out. The apartment's owner, I should add, did not necessarily agree. I love that. (laughs) Okay, so here we are. Kai is lying on a couch, eyes closed. The lights are dim. He begins narrating what he's seeing as he encounters spirits in the apartment near the door. Kai starts the cleansing off with a sort of meet and greet. He's encountering spirits, asking their names, and then figuring out how to evict them. And after meeting a few of these spirits, Kai encounters what he calls a cackling witch type energy. At this point, the owner of the apartment is starting to look 
pretty nervous. I command this energy that I have been tracking in the name of Jesus Christ and in the name of St. Cyprian to enter this cauldron of St. Cyprian's right now and to be bound to this cauldron until verbally spoken to, until verbally dealt with at St. Cyprian's altar. I call upon the power of St. Cyprian right now to bind this energy to his cauldron. There, he got her. He just trapped the witch in a little pewter cauldron that's sitting on the coffee table. So in the end, he makes a pyramid of good energy to protect the apartment from all the other spirits in the building that are literally banging on the floors to get inside, according to Kai anyway. So I thank my helping spirits for their aid. So yeah, I hope that helped. about when you all leave and here I am and there's like you know a red goblin by the door but he's gone well right but this is the, the, the <laughs> right now but you know when you were saying like by the door and there is this and now there is a bat here and now there is a witch and a ghost that killed herself there um and I was like I um oh that's real boo my apologies no no that, that's, that's cool <laughs> that's fine I feel better now okay I guess it worked that's what a cleansing is for Kai really provides a service for people who feel like ghosts are making their homes uninhabitable. Or I guess for people who don't. Listen, I have a stockpile of sage in my apartment. I'll just leave it there. Okay, part two, the Olivia Pope of real estate. Randall Bell. Tonight, meet Randall Bell. Randall Bell became an expert by doing a lot of research. It's a wonder the house is still standing in terms of the engineering. It should have gone this afternoon. Producers first talked with me about this story and what you do. My reaction was, he does what? <laughs> I assume that you're used to that reaction. Randall, the sociologist with the jazzy reel, <laughs> he's the guy who goes in after the cleaning crew, the guy that tries to get the place back on the market. And Bell, like we said before, he's the expert in appraising property values. Right, the conditions that create loss in value. He's the guy who comes up with that new number, the value of a place after a murder or any other kind of disaster. He actually wrote the book on it, Real Estate Damages, an analysis of detrimental conditions. He's worked on pretty much all of the darkest properties in the country in the last decades. We are talking about some of the most famous murders this country has ever seen. And he's the guy who goes in and evaluates the worth of the place left behind. Right, like Jennifer Dahmer's house, John JonBenet Ramsey's house, the state where Sharon Tate was killed by the Manson family, that place in San Diego where 39 members of the Heaven's Gate cult committed mass suicide. Tabloid horror scenes. And the property that made him the master of disaster was... The case that really put me on the map was the O.J. Simpson case. I'm Larry Carroll in Los Angeles. The Los Angeles County District Attorney has just filed murder charges against Arinthal James O.J. Simpson. Right. The O.J. Simpson case. You know, when O.J., I mean, someone killed Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman. 
The condo where those murders took place was, or rather still is, in Brentwood, Los Angeles, which is a pretty ritzy neighborhood. And it was after the cops were gone and the police tape was removed. There was just this really freaking famous condo sitting empty. And one day, while the trial was going on, our Randall Bell got a call from Nicole Brown Simpson's father being like, can you come look at this place? With every disaster, there's an emotional side and there's a practical side. And with Lou Brown, of course, he was dealing a lot of emotional issues, uh, losing a daughter. But on top of that, there were practical issues of what to do with her condominium. Which, of course, was going to be a little bit hard to sell, all things considered. Especially since people were then treating it like a tourist attraction. I'd be there, for example, on a Tuesday morning, and I'd I'd get out to L.A. early so I could beat traffic, and there would always be 20, 30 people in front of that house, and I thought, don't these people have jobs? And they're from all over the country. And how's this iconic? It's hard, because, you know, everybody saw the blood trail. Everyone had spent weeks talking about that bloody glove and looking at pictures of the bloody lawn. It was part of the collective unconscious. And because of that, Nicole's family wanted to be rid of it. But putting it up for sale in the midst of the trial of the century is going to be hard. Plus, you've seen the new FX OJ show. and Yes, it's amazing. Yeah, it's back in the zeitgeist. And now there's an uptick in traffic on that South Bundy Drive with people going back there and taking Instagram photos, which some of the ones I've seen are in seriously poor taste. Yeah, I mean, so you can understand if that is happening now after the TV show, what it must have been like then. And it was incredibly difficult to sell. It sat on the market for more than two years. The only way to sell the place in the end was to make it unrecognizable. And so Randall helped them change everything about it. They changed the facade. They put in new bushes. They changed the house number from 875 to 879 South Bundy Drive. And while it did eventually sell, it still went for about 200 k less than the asking price. There's the old saying that time cures all wounds, and that's true when it comes to real estate, but it takes a while. So people are hesitant to buy those properties, and frankly, they have to be enticed to buy them through a discounted price, simply because when you go home, you want to kind of forget all the cares of the world, and and you want to just kind of have a place to call your own and forget about everything. Right. Something that's this famous, it just stays around forever, and people are never going to forget about it. And so how do you put numerical value on that inability to forget? Well, it turns out the only way you can really figure out what something like that is worth is by comparing it to other properties where something just as terrible has also happened. With any of these cases, the the challenge, the, the goal is to find other cases that are similar and see what happened in terms of the real estate and apply those lessons and apply those findings to, to the case that they were looking at. So with the O.J. Simpson case, I looked at the Menendez brother property and I, I had worked on the Sharon Tate property up in the uh, Benedict Canyon. And I spread out and found other case studies of other similar crimes or sites of notoriety and gathered information for that property. That's how it's done. It's, it's not really a matter of me just kind of walking up and said, hey, I wrote a book on this and I really know everything. So that's how it's done. What Randall does, real estate damage economics, it's all about figuring out how much worse the OJ murders were than, say, the Manson family murder of Sharon Tate. It's literally stacking up one bad thing next to another. And once you have the differential, you can kind of decide, you know, how much less this property is and if a discount needs to be applied. And sometimes the shit that goes down at this property is just so bad that the people around it are desperate to wipe it off the block. 
That was the case with 924 North 25th Street in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Yeah, that's where a young white male in his 20s by the name of Jeffrey Dahmer sexually assaulted, dismembered, and eventually killed many of his young victims. He also ate some of them. Um, Okay, let's just talk about Milwaukee. (laughs) Okay. That address seems pretty central, near downtown, next to a big university. And what was interesting is that Randall said that Dahmer's house is one of the only one of his messed up places where he has seen a premium paid for it. That was because the community wanted it torn down so badly. Yeah, and still to this day, if you go to Google Maps, it's just an overgrown lot. Even after they tore it down, Randall says the empty lot made people feel uncomfortable. I was out there and I literally saw people that were walking down the street when they realized they were near the Dahmer property. They literally would cross the street so they didn't have to walk next to it. It it really... uh, had a really foul taste in everybody's mouth in that area. And while I was there, uh, one of the neighbors of the uh, apartment building next to Dahmer's said that when he moved in, he had no idea that it was next to Dahmer's. He wouldn't have moved there, but he put a picture in his windowsill so he didn't have to even look at it. So these sites are really repugnant to a lot of people, and they, they really do affect the real estate markets and people's decisions. Do you think that the people who are most affected by this are people who believe in ghosts? I mean, what makes someone feel so strongly that even when there's a vacant lot, they'd cross the street rather than walk next to it? Well, the issue goes way beyond whether or not someone believes in ghosts or not. And fortunately, I've never seen a ghost and I don't really want to see any ghosts. And uh, But but it's it's also these pragmatic issues of would you want to buy this property and have your friends reluctant to come in your house? Or would you want your kids their friends to be reluctant to come in the house. It's it's a lot of these, it doesn't have a lot to do with ghosts, but it has a lot to do with just the practical realities of enjoying life. That's so wild, right? I mean, you what you're valuing or rather showing cause for devaluation is something that you really can't see or touch. It's just, it's not, it doesn't have definition. So, you know, how, how do you put value or rather devalue on that? Of the 50 United States, about half of them have disclosure laws and about half of them do not. And California and New York have kind of led the way. The reality is, is that, you know, a lot of brokers say location, location, location. But really, I think a better watchword is perception, perception, perception. And when you have these very tangible events, even though nothing physical happened to the real estate, the perception towards that real estate has changed. Did you catch that? Only half the states in the country have laws that force an owner to tell a potential buyer if a death has happened in the home. Which means in a whole bunch of places, it's just buyer beware. Another thing that Randall says is that when he's assessing these properties, it has a lot to do with what kind of neighborhood they're in and how much the home is worth to begin with. As he says, since people with more money have more choices, a death in the home becomes more of a tangible issue. While on the other hand, an apartment in a high-crime neighborhood wouldn't depreciate as much if a murder took place there, which makes you realize there's a privilege in the fact that your house can lose value when a murder happens. Totally. And that you even have the choice to decide whether to take place based on what happened there, or the choice to be able to call a guy like Randall to do something about it. But from Randall's perspective, well, it's not easy being Randall either. Heaven's Gate was clearly the most bizarre, if not one of the most bizarre cases I worked on, simply because as a sociologist, you know, it's really hard to get my head around the ability that this guy Doe had 
in influencing others to do something so absolutely insane. I, I, I have a hard time getting a couple friends to come over and help me move a refrigerator. And yet this guy had the persuasive abilities to get 38 other people to put on uh, Nike shoes and put on purple shrouds and then eat this pudding knowing it would kill them. Knowing that, Randall told the guy who owned the Heaven's Gate place to just hand the keys back to the bank. Equity totally gone. Eventually, the bank sold it, but for what Randall called a significant discount to a guy who then just bulldozed the place. I can tell you I've seen a lot of properties that have been bulldozed, but the Heaven's Gate mansion was bulldozed. There was literally not a blade of grass left. There was no walls, no uh, driveways, no pool, tennis court, uh, trees, 100% bulldozed, the entire site. Some of these places where the really bad stuff happens, there's just no value left. It's just that something so messed up happened there that the physical space can't recover. But in other cases, like with your typical homicide, the property will get resold, usually, eventually, with a small discount, maybe 10 to 15 percent. Which isn't bad. Not at all. The market kind of determines what is a good deal, not me. I just kind of measure it. I can tell you with the Heaven's Gate Mansion, uh, I had the opportunity to personally buy that property. And it was a beautiful big house with a commanding view over San Diego and all kinds of amenities. But my wife looked at me like I was the village idiot, even considering buying it. Well, Lila is not a homeowner yet. And I think that we should start checking out, you know, the daily news for the right place for you. I would definitely be interested. <laughs> we got to get on that, Lila. Damn straight. Like I said, I'm down. If the deal was good enough, I'd definitely call up Kai and have him bring some sage over, take care of it. But it makes me think about how every property has a story to tell and that every ghost story is really also a real estate story. So I guess we're going to have to tell a lot of ghost stories. <laughs> a lot of ghost stories. Maybe a love story or two. Definitely a lot of stories about money. And power. But this is just the beginning. Thank you for listening. You've been great. I love a silent audience. We're going to start doing this every month, so please come back. Today's show is produced by us and edited by me and mixed by Aaron Leader. We want to give a huge shout out to our former cellmates who helped develop this show. Master of Disaster, Caitlin Boguki, and the Livia Pope of the podcast, Nick Offenberg. I also want to give a shout out to Joanna Bradley. You know what you did. <laughs> yes, she does. A special thank you to fellow radio bruja, Nadia Raymond, for shadow EPing this. Our logo was designed by the great Ben Tuber and a bit of music designed from Dorsal. We'd also love to hear from you. Everyone's got a horror story when it comes to real estate. And we want to hear yours. The good, the bad, the ugly. Preferably the bad and the ugly. Yeah, if you live in a $20 million mansion in Maui, you can keep it to yourself. Well, okay, send us a picture if you want. We love Maui. Email us at lasurrealestate at gmail. That's la as in L-E, surreal estate. If you like what you heard, give us a rating on iTunes. I know you hear that a lot, but just click those little stars. Four would be great. It's actually five, Lila. Okay, five. 